0: Don't you just love it when God does stuff? Um, that word that Helen shared about in Revelation 4, she shared about the throne of God. I said to her when she finished, You've just shared my sermon. And that's exactly what I, I want to talk about this morning the, uh, the holiness of God, the majesty of God. Um, I always grapple with what I'm going to be sharing on a Sunday morning. And when Stuart said, We're doing this series of God is still. Da, da, da. And he said, you could do various things. And when he said you could do God is holy, I was like, yes, I want to do God is holy because that's a subject I get really passionate about. Um, of course, in the Bible, we hear lots of stories of how holy God is. But it's special to me because I've tasted the holiness of God. I've tasted how awesome God is. And it's, it's cool to share that. Um, I'm going to share a story which... Actually, I'm sorry I shared it just several months ago, so I'm just going to recap it. But it fits so well, I just want to fit it into this topic. And that's when um, I was at a conference, New Wine, 2012. It's a week-long conference, and in the middle of a 5,000-strong-person worship, just the, the presence of God came on me so powerfully. Well, you know me. I'm here in the church with you. I'm well behaved in, in worship, aren't I? I, I? I don't make silly noises. But on this occasion, the presence of God was just so awesome. I lost it. Totally lost it. And I was just screaming out at the top of my voice, Holy God! Holy God! And that was, just, that was probably the first occasion that I just felt the power and the holiness of God to such a deep, in such a deep way. And... I keep encountering the holiness of God. And he's big. God is massive. Massive and holy. Um, It's interesting, isn't it? In a church, in any church, we don't have any pictures of God on the wall, do we? And it's... we, We have a cross, which is a symbol of God. But we don't have his portrait. And it's because... I suggest it's because we can't describe God in a picture. How could... A painting, a photograph, possibly capture God. We, we can't do that. If you read your Bible, you will find that God is in here. There's story after story, and a count of story of how awesome our God is. He is in here. Read this. Um, that first song that we we sung. Well, basically, when I was plan, planning to say this uh, preach, I cut a bit out. I thought, no, I won't share that bit, but I left it in my notes, and I've even left it on the slides, but I just arra- I just hid the slides, and then we sing about it, and I'm like, I think I'll share that bit. So basically, what I want to be sharing this morning is a few passages in the Bible which kind of talk about how awesome, how holy God is. I just really want to get across this morning how big our God is, because I think we try to put him in a box and make him smaller than he is, but actually he's, he's massive. So the, f- the first passage, the one that I w- had to raise, but I'm going to bring back to life, is from Matthew 24. And this is uh, 26, um, Matthew 24, verse 26. This is the account that Jesus talks about his ret- of his return. He is, when he left, he went up in clouds, didn't he? He ascended into clouds. And when he comes back, he says he will come back in the same way. He'd be coming on the clouds. Now, let's see if my slides are actually working because I raised them. Ah, brilliant. So, if we read verse 26, he's basically saying here, when he returns, it's not going to be a small affair. So if someone says to you, do you know what? Jesus has turned up. He's somewhere in Maidstone. Let's go over there and check it out. It's not true. Or have you heard? He's downstairs in Tesco's. He's not because when he does come, he will come like lightning. It won't be something that the news uh, stations have to report because everybody will know about it anyway. It will be a massive global event and he will come. On the clouds. We've just been singing, He's coming on the clouds, kings and kingdoms will bow down. And we'd be declaring that. And it also says in that song, Every knee will bow down. When He comes back, it's going to be global. Everybody's going to know about it. So now I'm going to move on to Revelation 1. This is where John encounters Jesus. Um, Now, John is a disciple, or was a disciple of Jesus. He hung out with Jesus for three years, and he was actually the person that was closest to Jesus. So, of all the people on earth, he knew Jesus the best, and he was his closest friend. So, let's see what happens when John encounters Jesus. This is Revelation 1. So, I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me. So as I read this, and we've just talked about we can't put a portrait of God on the the wall. As I read this, try to engage your imagination. I know these are just words, but just picture the majesty as I go through this. And when I turned round, I saw seven gold lampstands. And among the lampstands was someone like the Son of Man, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet, with a golden sash around his chest. Their hair on his head was white like wool, as white as snow. And this is where it starts to get interesting. His eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze, glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and coming out of his mouth was a sharp, double-edged sword. His face was like the sun shining in all its brilliance, and then his best friend from Earth, um, John sees this image for the first time, and he sees Jesus in his, all his glory. and I go on and I'll continue reading um, and then after John um, called out in a, loud vo- in a loud voice, "Yo, Jesus!" My man, it's been a long time. And he ran over to Jesus and he gave Jesus a high five. Hello. And a a, a bear hug. Um, No. Guess what? That's not the scripture. But the point I'm trying to get across here is that John was really familiar with Jesus. But when he saw Jesus in his glory, he fell at his feet as though dead. John would have been one of the most holy men alive at the time, he's written part of the Bible. Uh, yet when he meets Jesus in His glory, although he was holy himself, his response was just a full flat on his face before our holy Lord, our holy Jesus. Another illustration: I've uh, got my torch. Sorry, I'm, I'm t- put your sunglasses on. It's really powerful, isn't it? I will blind everybody. So. If this torch represents my holiness, look Look how bright my holiness is. Um, but if I was to, I'm not going to go over there because the, 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 the uh, lines are drawn. But if I was to go over there and point it out, the window, and point it towards the sun, and then maybe compare my torch to the power of the sun, there's, there's no comparison, is there? There's, it's like, hello? And the sun is... It's 93 million miles away, and even when it's so far away, if we try to look into the sun, it's like, whoa, my eyes are hurting. And the, if you look at the sun in just, just a scientific way, um, actually the energy that this torch has came from the sun in the first place, because without the sun, there's no life on Earth, and there would have been no one to make the torch in the first place. So this torch, actually, you should look at the sun and go, oh, yeah, I came from you, and any energy in here I give back to the Son. And is that not the same as us with us and heaven? The, uh, the torch is like our holiness that we have on earth. Yeah, we're holy. We are living saints for Jesus Christ. But the holiness we have in us compared to the holiness of heaven cannot be compared. And when someone from earth meets heaven, it's wow. Isaiah 6. Um, Isaiah was a prophet of the Old Testament. And so again, he was a, a holy man of his time. And he, in a vision, he goes to the throne room of heaven. Now again, as I, as I read this, try to engage your imagination. So this is Isaiah's account of his visit to the throne room. I saw the Lord... May I have some more water before I read this. I saw the Lord, high and exalted, seated on a throne. And the train of his throne filled the temple. Above him were seraphim, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, and two they covered their feet, and two they were flying. And they were calling out to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty the whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorpost and the threshold shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Can you picture this scene? It's pretty intense. If if we as human beings just encounter an angel on earth, and you see a few accounts in the Bible, it's pretty, it's pretty major. In fact, going back to John in Revelation, in chapter 22, John meets... Um, an angel. He's giving him a, the tour of, of heaven and suddenly the holiness that the angel is carrying is so intense that John starts to bow down and tries to worship the, the, the angel. And the angel goes don't do that. I'm a created being like you. Worship God. But the presence and holiness that the ca- the angel carried was was enough for John to worship him. thing is that presence was second hand. Because the angel resides in heaven and then the presence that the angel carried, second-hand presence, was so powerful that uh, John wanted to worship him. So going back to this passage, <coughs> so God is sitting on a throne. What is a th- He's not sitting on a chair or a park bench. He's sitting on a throne which represents that he is Lord, not just of a, a country here on earth, but he is Lord of heaven and therefore Lord of the universe. And the train of his throne, train of his robe, filled the temple. In the time that this was written, kings would wear really long robes, uh, not quite as long as this one. This filled the whole temple, but by wearing a very long robe, it symbolised the fact that you were top dog, you were king, because you couldn't do any work while wearing such a ridiculous garment. You barely move around, and it meant that people had to do everything for you. So this robe again represents that God. It fills the whole place, and it represents God is all-powerful. And then we have the seraphim, and notice how they've got six wings, and they are covering their faces, because um, in the commentaries I read, there's two reasons they may be covering their faces. One, it's just simply respect for God, and two, it might be that um, the glory of God is so powerful they just cannot bear it. They're like, whoa, God, you're so intense. And they're just having to look away from his glory. So just to be silly again, really, just just imagine, I mean, these, these, these seraphim have been singing this song, Holy, Holy, for like forever. It goes on and on and on. Do you think maybe they're a bit bored by now? and Maybe they're singing, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. I'm so bored of this song, but I just have to keep singing it. No, not at all. Even though these guys have been in the presence of God for years and years, day and night, there's no there's no, no night in heaven, but, you know, for illustration. Um, they are singing this song with passion. They love the Lord God. And they're singing it so loudly and with so much passion even the threshold shook and the temple was filled with smoke because I go, come on, this is awesome, awesome God. Right, that's why I'm getting lost. I've got a piece of paper turned upside down. No, this one. There we go. Yes. So, on some occasions when I've... I've uh, I've tasted the holiness of God. One of the thing one of the reactions that I get is that I actually sense my own sin more because I'm in the presence of a holy God. And it's not a negative thing at all. It's like I'm s- he's so holy and I'm sensing his holiness and I I really th- feel and sense that I'm dirty and I'm a sinner. But it's actually positive because all that makes me realise is how grateful I am for the for Jesus dying on the cross for me, because I realise the gap between my sin and God's holiness is vast, absolutely vast, and it actually just causes me to want to draw closer to God and worship Him more because He's like allowing me into His presence. Um, and as you as you read Scripture, it helps you to understand your encounters with God more. And every time you encounter God more, it helps you to understand Scripture more. And I'd like to share quickly Romans 12. Where is it? Here we go. In light of what I've just shared, that the fact that when we're in God's presence, sin is sort of more more obvious. Romans 12, verse 1. Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, and he's so merciful to us, um, because he's so holy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. So as we understand how awesome God is and how unawesome we are, here's, here's the torch again illustration, we are just so dim compared to him, it just causes a need to glorify him more. Um, so let's look at Isaiah's reaction um, just to illustrate this further. So, again, just to say Isaiah is a godly man, he's a prophet, he is the main man of the time, godly man. He goes to the throne room of heaven and he can't take it. He's, Woe to me, he cried. I am ruined. Before the holy God, he's just like, whoa. And he, and, he, and he senses his sin. I am a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips and my eyes. Have seen the, the Lord God Almighty. He's seeing the distance. He's just going, whoa, whoa. So that's, that's three accounts um, in the Bible of God's holiness. Um, I now want to bring it down to earth. And I've been reading this book. This is a very modern book. It was written in 1925. Um, and it's written about the Welsh revival, which happened in 1904. So it's written 20 years after this revival. And uh, I just want to read a few extracts from it. Um, let's see what I'm going to read first. So this is the this is the opening paragraph of the book. And as I read this, just see. It's obviously talking about the revival, but it's contrasting the revival to what it was like before the revival hit. And it might sound quite familiar. Listen to this. It was 1904. All Wales was aflame. The nation had drifted far from God. The spiritual conditions were low indeed. Church attendance was poor and sin abandoned on every side. Suddenly, like an unexpected tornado, the Spirit of God swept over the land. The churches were crowded with that so that multitudes were unable to get in. Meetings lasted from 10 in the morning until 12 at night. Had I mentioned this as this a lock-in, we're not leaving until 12. But do you see the, uh, the contrast of a, of a revival compared to where we are now as a nation? And then moving on to chapter 5. Chapter 5 is entitled to conviction. And as I read this, what I want to pull out is the fact that as people meet a holy God on earth, um, they detect their sin. They sense their need for salvation. There's a desperation there. Um, and just to remind you, this is 1925. This book is written and the, the, the sentence starts in the modern campaign. And again, just listen out for the familiarity to, to today's times. In the modern campaign, the evangelist calls upon the people to accept Christ, and rightly so. But oh, that we could hear sinners calling upon Christ to accept them. People take salvation today in such a cold, formal, matter-of-fact, business-like sort of way that appears as though they are doing God the honor of considering to receive his offer of redemption. Their eyes are dry Their sense of sin is absence. They look upon it as mainly a thing to do, but oh, if there were conviction. If they came with hearts bowed down, yea, broken and contrite, came with the cry of the guilt-laden soul, God, be merciful to me, a sinner, came trembling with the burning life and death question of that Philippian jailer, what must I do to be saved? So he see, he's he's kind of lamenting over what it was like 20 years ago. He can see that it's all gone a bit cold. But 20 years ago in 1904, he's like, people came when they were burdened. Burdened for salvation in the presence of God. Later on in chapter 5, I've got some some accounts of prayer meetings or church meetings where People are just hit by the power of God. So just as we are now, and suddenly God just goes, turns up. Um, so this is talking about a man who's in a meeting and is is judging the meeting. Um, he's obviously everyone's having a good time in the presence of God, and he's like, uh-uh. a man stood by was not a man who stood by was not a little displeased at the dissimulation of these creatures, talking about the people, and was biting his lips and knitting his brows. When he dropped as thunderstruck, the agony he was in was even terrible to behold. He besought God not to lay folly to his charge, and he soon lifted up his head and cried aloud, now I know that thou art a prophet of the Lord. So this, this man was in absolute agony, it was even hard to watch the agony of this, this soul go, oh, God. And suddenly the realization of the need of God in his heart. And suddenly he's been listening to the preacher and suddenly he realized what the preacher's been saying. He's like, oh, I get it. You're a prophet. This account was, was written by John Wesley. Two more accounts. Short one. Cries for mercy rang out over the chapel. Before the sermon was done, I, with many others, fell upon my knees to implore salvation. So this is, this is written by someone who's already a Christian, But they're in the middle of listening to this sermon, and the presence of God comes, and suddenly this guy's begging for salvation. God, will you take me in? I am a sinner. Last account. Um, I had not proceeded fine to my public disclosure before she felt effectively that she had a soul and before I concluded my disclosure, was so convinced of her sin and misery and distressed and concerned for her soul's salvation that she seemed like one pierced through with a dart. She cried out incessantly. She could neither go nor stand nor sit on her seat without help of being held up. After public service was over, she lay flat on the ground, praying earnestly, and would take no notice nor give answer to any who spoke to her. I hearkened to what she said, and perceived the burden of her prayer to have mercy on me, and help me give my heart fully to God. Again, someone who's pierced right through to the heart by the holiness and majesty of God. So, in summary of all the stuff that I've been sharing, we have when we have um, Jesus coming. In the clouds, and I realise as I'm saying this, because I didn't properly prepare this passage, I've missed a bit out. It says that all of Earth mourned when they saw Jesus, and I'm guessing that's because they suddenly felt their shortcomings. And then we have John in Revelation one, who just falls down flat on his face. We have Isaiah who says, "Woe to me, woe to me! I am ruined." And then you have these three accounts that I've just read, where People are just cut to the heart and they're just crying in pain in the presence of a holy God. So these are all examples of how humans interact with the holiness of God. So I'm now going to turn to to look at, put the focus on us and look at scripture a little bit and also to focus on sin. So in all of these accounts, people have been, Focusing on their sin, they they sense their sin and they go, oh, I'm so sinful. So, just again to play with the word, um, does the word in anywhere say that because we're covered by the blood of Jesus Christ and our sins are forgiven, does the word say, well, that's okay then, you can be as sinful as you like. Go off and get drunk, go off, commit adultery, it's fine, Jesus covers all your sins. It says nothing of the sort. It says quite the opposite. Even though our sins are covered by Jesus Christ, it says, be holy. Be holy. Choose to seek God. It says, be holy because I am holy. Our sins are incompatible with the holy God. I hope you have a, an awesome picture in your mind now of how amazing God is. And we are sinners, and our sins are incompatible with God. He calls us to be a holy people. And of course, I don't want you to get confused and think that I'm talking that we have to be holy in our own strength. The whole point is we can't do it on our own. So just to remind you, that is why Jesus died for our sins. Because we're imperfect, we're sinners, but if we call out to Jesus and say, Jesus, Jesus, I so desperately need you, then our sins are forgiven. But it's not just calling out to Jesus, oh, please just forgive my, my sins, Jesus. It's, it's chasing after, pursuing the life of Jesus and trying to be Christ-like ourselves. So let's look at Ephesians 5. And this is just, I could have picked out so many um, verses that tell you how to live. Um, and actually, I was walking along the our landing, and Eden, my daughter, she's into listening to the Bible at the moment, and she was listening to this, and it was just like just stood out to me. Whoa, that's a brilliant passage. I'll preach on that. Um, I'm gonna have any more water. So this passage is talking about not being sinful, but walking as a holy person. For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Live as children of light, for the fruit of the light consists of all goodness, righteousness, and truth. And find out what pleases the Lord. I love that line. I love that. Find out what pleases the Lord. Can you imagine our holy God? He's massive, and we can please him. How cool is that? Let us find out what pleases God. Um, have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. It is shameful even to mention that what the disobedient do in secret. Again, listen to that. We, the world that we live in now is so far from God, and we are called to live apart from sinful things. Don't even mention it. But everything esp- exposed by the light becomes visible, And everything that is illuminated becomes a light. Skipping over one verse to 15. Be very careful then how you live. Not as unwise, but as wise. Making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. Again, understand what the Lord's will is. Understand God. You know, I've said this before, haven't I? A great way to understand God is to read his word. uh he's in he's in here. read his word and he, you understand what he wants from us and what pleases him. So that that's a passage of how to do it. I'm now going to read a passage which is the flip side. It's an how not to do it. And it's a very well known passage, Galatians 5, um the sins of the flesh. But before I r- I go through that with you, I'd like you to self, do a self-examination in yourself, and say to yourself, as I read through the things, am I participating in any of these things, which are so prevalent in our world, but the important thing is, we can't judge ourselves compared to anybody else, because when we go to heaven, we'll be judged for what we've done, not what others have done. You can't go to God at uh, at the end and go, please, sir, I was naughty because he told me to. That won't wash. We have to, we are held account to not each other, but to the truth. So let's just read through this. And again, just just have a deep self-examination. Are we part of this? The acts of the flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality, and that's everywhere, isn't it? Impurity, debauchery, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, bits of rage, selfish ambition, that's also prevalent, dissensions, factions, and envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. That's a stark warning. Do not live as the world lives. So I just simply want to challenge you by saying, are you holy? Are you holy? Or are you participating in the world? This is a really vital question to ask yourself. Um, are you holy? Or are you embroiled in the world? Um, I want to create an opportunity to to come forth for prayer. I think there's a, there's a need. Um, I think we need to put God as number one in our lives. And as I say this, can I ask the, the band to come back? We could, we could be in many different places um, here. We could be in a really desperate situation and know that we're stuck in sin and know desperately that we need God and all of us need God. If you sense that you've got it wrong, if you sense that you need God, that I'd invite you as we worship to come forward and say, God, I need you. I can't do this in my strength. And I lay down before you the sins that entangle me. If you feel the conviction of that and you feel like, yeah, I want to put God as number one. I need you, God, so desperately that I invite you to come forward as we worship. And the other thing is, I'm hungry. I've just described the awesome holiness of God. I want more of that. I really want more of that. If you're hungry for God and you want more of God, it's a, it's a similar reason for coming forwards. Really, if you want more of God, come forwards. Come forward as a, as a declaration to say, "Yeah, God, I need you. I'm desperate for you in my life." So I don't particularly that first call where. It's a brave move to get up and come to the front sometimes. But I would encourage you to be brave and come forwards and just stand in the presence of God and there'll be people again to pray for you. Shall we stand? I'm just going to pray and then we can worship. Lord, we just acknowledge you are so awesome. You are so holy. You are a mighty God. And we so desperately need you. Whether we are holy like Isaiah, holy like John, or whether we're, we're struggling with sin, whatever end of the spectrum we're in, we're so desperate for you, Lord, because we are just human beings. Lord, as we worship you now, I just pray that you would, you would come into our hearts, Lord, cut into our hearts in places that we need to, to let you in. We love you, Holy Lord. Amen.